Welcome to the podcast of 37 Things You Need to Know About Modern Britain. 37 Things is a series of talks dreamt up by Bug in partnership with the House of St Barnabas. In these talks, we try to unpick modern life by asking open-ended questions about the things that seem important today, whether that's money, the media, the madness of celebrities, or the problem with the colour pink. The House of St Barnabas is a not-for-profit members club that is pledging to break the cycle of homelessness and social exclusion in London. To find out about it, go to hosb.org.uk. And Bug is a collection of journalists and business people who like to question accepted ideas. For more information about Bug and to see the other projects we're working on, go to buglondon.co.uk. And don't forget, you can actually come along to hear our 37 Things talks which take place in the chapel at the House of St Barnabas. Just check out either of those websites for details. Thing 17 is exercise elitist. So we do talks and we like to unpick pop culture and exercise has become pop culture. It used to be something over here that strange men did in short pants and now everybody does it. We've covered a lot of things in our talk. We've covered the politics of the colour pink, whether celebrities are better if they're mad, but this one I think is going to be one of my favourites. That's because I personally exercise four times a week. I do running, I do swimming, I do Pilates, yoga, boxercise, plus HRT training with a personal trainer who trains David Gandhi and Davina McCall. <laughs> Can you tell I don't do that? <laughs> but I feel as though I should. So I do a little bit of running, I do swimming a little bit, but what was once called keep fit and slightly laughed at, you know, the green goddess, is now a kind of highly publicised, highly desirable way of living, a kind of lifestyle goal. It's a capitalist dream, along with owning your own house and succeeding in the career of your choice. It's something that you think you can achieve. It's kind of sparkly, but within reach if you put in the effort. And it's also a massively profitable business. So workout clothing, just clothing... It's uh, worth £6.4 billion worldwide. That's a lot. Um, and not just the big names, Adidas, Nike, Puma, but also the boutique. So Barry's Boot Camp, Soul Cycle, Lululemon. These are businesses that were unheard of just a few years ago. And individuals have risen swiftly too. Joe Wicks, hot-bodied stud muffin. He has a YouTube channel and gained 70,000 paying followers in his first year. I don't follow him, but I know that he is hot-bodied. I've seen him. But as these people rise, they leave some people behind. It's hard to keep up with younger, prettier, richer, more famous people than you when the very idea of pulling on a pair of trainers, let alone running in them, makes you break out into a sweat, although that could be healthy, I suppose. But sport has competition in its soul. But should we be competing about this kind of stuff? Would we not be better to walk to work, just take the stairs instead of the lift? That's what I used to get told, but it seems like it's not enough now. Perhaps we should ignore, ignore the exotic pull of the lycra pant. Just walk like this. But maybe the pain's worth the gain. Can we, should we, all be fitter than we are, than you are? Should you all be fitter, <laughs> all of you? Or is fitness only for the elite? So, speaking tonight are three Fitbits. Here they are. There's Lorraine Candy. She's about to start her job as luxury... Con- this is in just the, wor- the world's best title. Luxury content director at the Sunday Times and editor-in-chief of Style magazine. Before that, she was editor-in-chief of Elle magazine for 12 years, and she oversaw a revolution in that magazine, one that included fitness as a kind of intrinsic part of lifestyle. She herself has taken up, I'm going to list these, I asked her, running, spin cycling, 
boxing, open water swimming, surfing and triathloning. Yes, all slowly, but that's fine. Uh, Morgan Rees over there is content director of 3C Media. Uh, he, they work with Nike and Amazon with, for, to make content for them. He also worked for his editor of Runner's World, and he relaunched Men's Health in 2003, and it's now the UK's best-selling men's magazine. And he launched Women's Health magazine too in 2010. And also, he was a professional kickboxer before becoming a journalist, which is possibly the most impressive bit. <laughs> and Tim Weeks here is an ex-Olympic athlete who now coaches Olympians himself. He's a fitness thinker. He worked on uh, London 2012. He was the brains behind Cycle, the Spin Cycle place just over there and he was responsible for persuading Rob the Bank into to put a room full of spin cycles right at the heart of the UK's messiest festival festival and I can't believe he did that to be honest um so the way the evening goes is each of our speakers speak for about 10 minutes then they have a little chat with me and then we throw open the questions to the audience and that's it it's fun I have some of your uh, cards to say why you've got foot. I just have to read one out because it does really make me laugh. So this one is this, um, uh, do you exercise why? Yes, to sustain the illusion of hope. <laughs> <laughs> Which I like. Oh, and also just to say, if you want to um, tweet about the event, uh, use the hashtag exercise elitism. And if you want to come to our next talk, it's on May the 4th and it's called Modern Work is Rubbish. So, but let's talk exercise first. Who's up first? Morgan first. Wonderful stuff, thank you. So um, when I was asked to, uh, to, to come here, it was it really interested me when Ren said, is fitness the new elitism? My first reaction was, I really bloody hope not, because if it is, I've wasted 12 years of my life. Um, what I did essentially was I started um, on Men's Health magazine. Um, and just to explain roughly what that means, this is how it looks now and then. So um, I actually started years ago for my sins on, on Lad Mag, so I'll apologise to you all. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> Um, and uh, in 2003, I actually got approached about taking on this magazine called Men's Health, basically because nobody wanted it. Uh, it was not cool, it was not sexy, there was absolutely no consumer interest to it, and it was deemed to be niche. Um, to give you some idea of that, this is sort of how it broke down. So this is kind of in descending order in 2004. You had FHM, which was selling around 900,000 copies a month, then loaded Maxim, Zoo Nuts, Men's Health and GQ. Um, and then what we managed to do was work with a culture shift. I would love to say it was down to us, and if anyone wants to suggest that, please feel free, but it really wasn't. Um, and what we did was we actually managed to change men's health uh, and change the perception around it to make it work. And, uh, you know, to this day, men's health is the, the largest selling men's magazine in Britain, which, you know, quite, quite proud of with the team that, that put it together. Um, this is what men's health was before we had to reinvent it in 2003. Um, I got so much grief when I was going to take on Men's Health because I was going, hey, the Sex and Abs magazine. Like, yeah, 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 that's the one. And um, it really was. When you look at the cover lines, you know, it was basically very, very torso-obsessed. Um, there was a huge sex line in what's called, the, you know, the hotspot. Um, there was an awful lot about muscle on the covers uh, each time. So it really was aesthetic over everything else. It was sort of a one-dimensional cover. It was selling OK, you can't knock it, but, you know, the trick was actually to add to it. Um, when we were looking at how we were actually going to do it, we sort of looked at how men had changed and how their physiques had changed. It's quite interesting. Um, we sort of used lots of social um, references, but films were obviously a big one. So in the 80s, when Men's Health actually launched, a lot of with that cover that you just see, it was a very standard template for a long time. It really was about hugely disproportionate muscle. You know, it didn't matter if you did your legs. As long as you had massive arms, you were OK. Um, in the 90s, there really was 
nothing. You know, if you track it, and these are tracked by some of the top telling, top ten uh, movies of the decades. This is so, you know, we all love Woody, but my God, there wasn't a body shape that you'd want to keep with. Um, you know, Arnie getting slightly fatter, Pacino, you know, Keanu. In the 90s, uh, in the noughties, it was interesting because this is obviously when I took over and we were looking at it, the, sort of the top ranking films, there was a shift and what was actually happening was that there was a new body shape coming in which was a lot more lean and a lot more defined, a lot more fitness-based. And actually, as it progressed and as the fitness techniques became more advanced and more developed, there was another new body shape again which was sort of big and defined, which was, we were actually kind of able to come onto it. So we call it the, the, the rise of the leading man and it kind of coincided culturally very nicely with us trying to make fitness actually less elite and take these chips to the masses. What we also had to do and we're looking at was kind of looking at the consumer and thinking, well, actually, who do they want to be? Um, and there was a time when they, they wanted to be Arnie, you know, and there was flex and you know, that was a thing. Um, but what we actually looked at was the consumer lifestyleization of what we're doing was, was quite huge. Yeah, people did actually want to be fit, but it wasn't at the be-all and end-all of everything else. So we had to change the magazine to make sure that the bits and pieces that we put into the magazine integrated that you could be that hardcore guy if you wanted to, but actually the tips that we're going to put in the magazine, the information that we're going to give you could actually be useful and applied on a daily basis. So this was sort of how, how we did it really. We tried to work out what the new values were and it's loving something we call service journalism. Um, what we did was we made sure that every piece of, uh, of sort of fitness information that went into the magazine provided a service. Um, so there had to be the takeaway to every piece of information, which is that there had to be something you could actually use and take away with you. Um, we did this thing called the U-Factor. We made this poor intern, bless him, go through the magazine and count up the amount of times we actually said you in the magazine. Uh, and he did it, Lord love him. And then we said, that's great. Can you now reference it against eight other magazines? I'm really, really sorry. Um, but he did. Um, and actually, we tracked it against sales. And what we found that actually was the more a magazine says you, actually, you know, the more it works to, to the mass. We tried to make sure we changed the fundamental ideology. So um, we started using the strap line, small steps, big results. So the idea that actually in your everyday lifestyle, culturally, you can build this in. You know, you don't have to have a personal trainer. You don't have to have uh, a nutritionist. You don't have to have access to thousands and thousands of pounds worth of gym equipment. You can, and we can make that work, but that's it. We did it by the expert authority because, like most journalists, I suffer massively from imposter syndrome. And why would anyone want to listen to me? So what we did was we upped the expert count in the magazine. So every piece of information came either from a latest study or from a nutritionist or from a fitness trainer, and we would disseminate that information to make it useful. We'd work on the tip count to make sure that we would put ideally two tips per paragraph into the magazine to make it very tip-dense. Um, and then we came up with these, these kind of taglines. So I was very lucky to have a, a wonderful deputy editor called Mike Shawcross, who's infinitely smarter than me, but made me look good for a very long time. Uh, and he sort of came up with this tagline, the members club you're all invited to. So we really, really tried to offer a different type of journalism so that we could actually make this easily applicable and, 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 and less elite. So this is just sort of how we applied that. This is the core contents in 2003. Uh, all good stuff and stuff you'll find in most um, health and fitness magazines. What we tried to do was to add to it so that we're trying to make it the complete mix. And this works with the reclassification of man. So it was no longer just about one thing. We would actually offer you new ways that you could apply it to your life and that we would broaden it. So we tried to state the idea of fitness being about your body, potentially about your physique, but also about all aspects of your lifestyle to, uh, to, to make it work. And what we found, we thought was quite interesting, was that as time went on, fitness was just this word. It used to be, you know, I'm old enough to remember the 80s, sadly. It was guys in tight shorts playing squash once a week before going down the pint and sinking six beers. It moved on, you know, and what we found was it moved on into lots of different classifications. And with the male skew, 
that was really key. So what we found was there were lots of different motivating factors. Some people it's just cardio, wanting to have a cardio system, basically undoing a lot of the damage that came about from the 90s. Um, for some people, it was performance-based. For some people, it was goal. For a lot of people, it was events. And for a lot of men, it was sports. So we were actually able to find lots of different ways to try and approach the same thing. Uh, and then what we actually found was after we'd sort of worked out this approach for, for men's, we were asked to look at women's. I'm going to apologise massively to Lorraine here because we've got a copy of Ellen. It's actually Australia now. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you did that cover anyway. Yeah. Uh, and what we did with women's, because um, though I may hide under the beard, I'm actually a man. So it was very difficult to, you know, to, to work in a new sector. We were looking at these and we actually wanted to make a really sexy looking health and fitness magazine. You know, culturally we thought, this will be great. We'll make it look really good. And Elle was like the magazine. You know, it was like, oh, let's make it like Elle. This will be brilliant. So we tried and we did this dummy, and it was a spectacular failure. It just did not work at all. It was, it was wonderful to see something crash and burn so monumentally. No ambiguity. We utterly fucked it up. Um, so then we tried to go exactly down the other end of the spectrum and do a pure health and fitness title. Um, and there was absolutely no interest in that either, weirdly. And then what we found was there was this mid-market magazine, um, and that was basically what people wanted. And the most interesting thing in uh, sort of the taking the male approach and trying to apply it to the female approach was in the cultural application. What we found was that when we did the testing on the market, women didn't want to be patronised. This, this overwhelming thing came through. There were so many magazines that would say, don't worry, you're fine as you are, light some candles, have a bath and eat two pieces of chocolate. And it was like, oh, come on. <laughs> so what they wanted was actual information. Um, and that's what we did with, with women's. We made it actual, gave it a good tone, and um, it turned out to be a very successful launch, thankfully. So what we found across both was that actually we had to work on a diversification of fitness. Um, and it works with a new user. We made these titles, which obviously had the magazine, but we've actually taken the brands and extended them into lots of different areas, which has worked quite nicely and has different price points for different types of people in different areas, trying to make sure that it covers off as much as it can for everybody. So what I would say is, you know, is fitness the new elitism? For me personally, no. Everybody always asks me from, you know, 120,000 tips, what's the two things that you take away from it? So I always think exercise, you know, fitness fundamentally, eat a bit better, exercise a bit. You'll all be fine, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Tim, over to you. So I'm a bit old school. I'm on cards. OK, so when Miranda first uh, kind of gave me a call and, and, and asked me if I could talk about this, uh, for me it was a really, really interesting topic, partly because I've got, I originally had a very different interpretation of what elitism was, and also, um, Miranda and I met about four years ago, and uh, and it was kind of a, it was a very interesting conversation because Miranda was kind of uh, doing a piece for a, a newspaper and was kind of uh, all about uh, <laughs> what's happening to fitness and culture and kind of culture and fitness and where does it all fit? And and I kind of I remember when we sat down literally for a cup of tea, I was like, I really think that. That, that fitness and sport and health is going to become cool. And Miranda was kind of like, really? <laughs> and, and so it's really interesting to be standing here with Miranda four years, essentially discussing that point. We're right. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and what I wanted to do was talk about briefly why I, was, why I was kind of thinking that point four years ago. So for me... My, uh, I, ha I have a kind of a slightly peculiar journey because uh, I was on the Olympic team for triathlon 
Um, so between 18 and 23, I was basically uh, slightly army style military. You get up at four, you train 36 hours a week and you do as you're told. And kind of, I didn't know any different. I thought that was the norm. Uh, you know, you swim 8K in two hours and then you get out of the pool and have a sleep and get up and train again. And that's, that's the way the world works. But then the other side of it was that I actually came from a very musical family, a very culturally diverse family with no genetic sporting history at all. And my brother was running uh, like club culture in underground London and car parks. So I was kind of training by day and would kind of go along to these illegal raves in warehouses and all around London. So I had this really interesting kind of growing up. And then for me, what happened was that um, I was involved in quite a big bike crash uh, just before Athens Olympics um, and broke a few bones and had to retire. So I then naturally moved into, into coaching and then coached uh, two world champions and an Olympic medalist as well. So kind of, uh, th th that was my world. And then for me, the, the next step was I always find it really hard to coach and be part of this world that I couldn't be part of. So I kind of was really fascinated by what the government was doing and sport and kids and infrastructure and like, like let's step out of this bubble and see, see what's going on in the, in the real world. So kind of, that was just kind of in the run up to 2012 really. And I was involved in the first ever children's triathlon uh, up in Liverpool, well, we decided to put it in Liverpool. So I was event director and we uh, decided that it'd be great to get kids involved in triathlon. So the way that we tried to make it quite inclusive was that we held it on a council estate in Liverpool. We actually had to have four riot vans <laughs> on the bike course <laughs> and, and the children had to kind of wear motorbike helmets rather than normal helmets because there were scallies sitting on the side of the road throwing stones at them <laughs> and it was kind of you know how's this is this gonna work <laughs> but i think i was then involved in talent search and kind of you started to stumble across these like huge statements so i'm going to tell you a statement now that that it's applicable to 2015 but at the time it was very similar so we're discussing is exercise the new elitism but what i want to try and do is frame it in a much, like, where does that fit in the big picture? In the UK, so this is 2015, 44% of adults never do any physical activity. Zero. So we're discussing spin bikes and lycra and men's health, 44%. The financial cost of physical inactivity to the NHS in 2009 was estimated to be 900 million pounds. So when you're kind of trying to get kids involved in sport, this kind of like baffles you. Obesity, in 1993, 13.2% of men were, were physically obese. In 2013, when he'd hoped there was a bit of progress, 26% of men are physically obese. That's one in four men in the UK. Women, 93, 16.4% are obese. And 20, in 2013, 23.8%. Again, about one in four. So when you kind of look at 
the Joe Wicks, the Instagram, everything, it, it suddenly kind of puts it all in a slightly different question, in, in, in a different frame. The other part that was interesting was in an NHS report in 2015, 13% of men cited that, and 16% of women cited that a lack of money was a barrier to that physical activity. So when you kind of look at those facts, what London, the reason why London won the Olympics was because they took all those facts and was basically presented this kind of concept to the world, which was our nation's kind of not in a great place and we're going to uh, kind of, 2012 will, will change the way that the UK thinks and perceives sport activity, everything in it will just inspire a nation. And that was how it won the bid. And if you think about what happened in 2012, that is exactly what happened. That was the turning point for the UK, in my opinion. Because suddenly everyone was interested. Not necessarily kind of watching it, but they went from this kind of, there was this waves of interest across the UK from watching it, talking about it. It was just, for, for those that kind of were around or even had a chance to go, it was, it was this bizarre, amazing, you know, experience that happened in the UK. So kind of, you've got this start of a shift from these kind of problems, 2012 wins. And to me, that was the, that was the kind of tipping point when we suddenly had this, this trigger for this start of this cultural shift. And I think part of that cultural shift opened a door to the financial value of the wellness industry. Because it suddenly, people suddenly started to click. The global wellness economy is worth 3.72 trillion dollars. That's three times the size of pharmaceuticals. So suddenly you've got this interest and you've got this political aspect and then you've kind of got this massive pot of money. So it's kind of, there's so much going on, in, in, on, on, this, on this timeline and I'm like unintentionally kind of interestingly jumping along the, on the, along the line. Linked in with that, you've got Instagram and social media. Now I'm going to look at quickly at Instagram because that was how we... Uh, 2012, it was kind of, that was just the start of Twitter and what was going on and how do you get people talking about it. Instagram, which is kind of part of the reason for this discussion, because suddenly the barrier to entry for everyone, anyone, looking, watching, joining, listening, opinions, whatever you want to talk, talk about in a fitness place or wellness, it, it suddenly, social media allowed it to become accessible. Instagram started in 2010. In April 2012, same year as the Olympics, Facebook bought Instagram for $1 billion. They had 13 staff. <laughs> it was a split. <laughs> five years later, 500 million users in five years, and it's valued at $35 billion. So you can see that there's this massive growth curve of social media change, cultural change, everything's kind of shifting all at the same time. You've got magazines starting to kind of change the way they're having to like interact with their reader. L Lorena L kind of, that was part of her battle and the same with Morgan and like how are people interpreting everything. 
And then, and then obviously you've got, there were certain markets, because there was so much money in the place, you, you, what you did want to happen was that there were certain people that suddenly saw that there was this bottom chunk of the population that were potentially getting left behind. So someone like Pure Jim, very cleverly, jumped in at the bottom end of the market. So the Pure Gym target budget. It's the UK's number one, they've got 170 sites. But when you compare that, there are 1,698 Gregs. <laughs> I don't even notice any Gregs in London, like occasionally, but like 1,698, 2,200 Costas. So it's kind of, when you, when you look at it in a different place, it, it's kind of you start realising that kind of we're having an interesting discussion, but it's, it's actually quite London-centric. London is becoming this little bubble, and it's a matter of what actually is happening outside. Now, obviously, there's the financial driver behind London. Now, part of that change in that cultural shift was also, and I was part of it, unfortunately, uh, which is an interesting place now for me, but Soul Cycle. So as part of this slight change, so I was asked to literally, can you copy SoulCycle, please? And I was like, well, why don't we do it like London way? So I actually went over to SoulCycle and spent about a month going to three classes a day, every day for a month. And I was fascinated as to why, like, what was it? And the reason I'm saying that is because in 2014, Soul Cycle, so bikes like that, in a space like this, they posted revenues of $112 million on a spin bike. That's, they got 18 studios in Manhattan. Okay, that's like one every street corner. What then happened off the back of that was there was a company called Peloton, which kind of copied it, but rather than having 18 sites, they got one and they start streaming stuff instead. They were, only valued, they were only worth $50 million in 2015. One year later, they're worth $150 million. So there's this kind of crazy place whereby indoor cycling, what's going on? How do we cop it in London? That's what's happening in New York. And then the final piece of the interesting puzzle is this kind of explosion of exercise classes, which I, I've left till last because I think it's the kind of part of the the route to why we're even having this discussion because when you pay $35 for a class in America and one of the things that I really know at SoulCycle and one of the reasons why I was fascinated by the financial model is because the reason why it works over there is because if you have a room this size you can fit more bikes in a room this size than yoga mats, reformers, boxing, anything, because you can literally pack them in and in Soul Cycle they pack them in. So in a space like this you can stick 75 bikes, easy. $35, 14 classes a day, seven days a week, do the sums. So what happened was that what they did was they basically bottled up this euphoria and suddenly it was cool to go to a class and that's what people are doing differently over in New York about f uh, three years ago. And the reason I'm saying that is because people are starting to go to a class instead of going out. 
people were starting to kind of spend their money on classes rather than buying, I'm saying a handbag, only because their huge market at SoulCycle is women. And literally, in the same sentence, they would kind of classify themselves as, I'm cool, I'm fashionable, I have a handbag that's a particular brand, and I go to SoulCycle. It was, it was in a totally different realm to exercise. It was suddenly culturally and fashionably cool. So the, first, the last part is ClassPass. ClassPass was started in 2013. And I don't know, does anyone know what in here ClassPass is? So what ClassPass does, it does the opposite end of the spectrum, and it sweeps up all the empty seats and then sells them to you at a kind of a membership. It's about 80 quid, I think, over here. So all they do is collect empty seats and sell them on and then pay the gym a, a, an amount. Since they started in 2013, so before 2013, there was no class pass because there were no classes. So since 2013, 30 million class reservations have been made. In 2016, they made revenues of 150 million from class reservations, and that's a small slice. They're valued at $400 million now. So in 2013, there were no studios, roughly. In London, there were 386 in four years. So regarding this, for me, it's kind of a really interesting place because I think it's very easy to get caught up in the London bubble and discuss like what is happening, why are people paying so much money, what's happened to Instagram. Well done to Joe Wicks. If it's actually going to change people's perceptions of health, exercise, eating, whether or not you like him, dislike him, whether or not you like Instagram, hate Instagram, like classes, don't like classes. I personally think that the, the, the aggregation of all the stuff happening is actually probably a good thing because going full circle back to those obesity rates and problems we have in the UK, if it's increasing awareness about exercise, is that a bad thing? Thank you. When I was asked the question, is exercise the new elitism, it reminded me of something somebody tweeted at me um, when I was waffling on about something I'd done exercise, that if you were, had to sign a confidentiality agreement, you'd never do a marathon, because people just wouldn't do it if they couldn't <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> which I thought was really funny, which kind of summed up the culture at the time. But um, what I'm going to talk about is very briefly is what I did um, at Elle. When, so Elle, is, Elle was a, is a fashion magazine, which is also a zeitgeist magazine. It's also really about what young women, uh, women between 18 and 40, actually, are doing and thinking. And a lot of what we did in the magazine was driven by what we were seeing on the catwalk. And often fashion is a real reflection of what is happening in society. It's a, it's a marker of history, sometimes, fashion. Um, we were seeing so much athleisure. We were seeing many more big female names at the big design houses and at Celine and Stella and we were watching this kind of change where the very high heel was disappearing and the trainer was becoming a very important part of young women's lives and that and it wasn't just a fashion thing it was about comfort it was about women dressing with ease and dressing for themselves and feeling that they were safe in the way they dressed and happy in the way they dressed and it kind of was also at the same time as you were saying that exercise fitness was becoming not you do fitness 
and then you do this. It was all blending together a little bit. Um, and I was seeing it among my team. So we were a very unique team. Uh, we worked across both the digital and the print um, product. So we worked on a hot desk, which was very um, unusual. And as we moved to that um, situation five years ago, I realized that I was working with 40 to 45 young women and I was sitting out with, with, I was the boss and I was sitting out next to an intern or next to an assistant. So I would have to create a culture within the office that people enjoyed and what were young women enjoying at the time. And at the point, that point, they were yoga, spinning, all these things were happening. And it wasn't, one of the things I discovered, it wasn't about personal bests for the, for the women I was working with or the women, I, the consumers we engaged. And we engaged every day. We had five million followers on Facebook, so we knew what young women were thinking. And it wasn't about personal bests. It, it wasn't about massive achievements. It wasn't huge goals. It was about grouping together as young women, going out and doing something, and doing something active. We were also seeing, they weren't going out on Thursday and Friday nights and spending loads of money and doing all the things we did in the 90s. They were actually getting out, you know, going out so they could get up and do things on Saturday morning. So Soul Cycle became a huge thing. And obviously I was working in a place where we had to reflect what was cool and what was very London-y in, in a way, but had to appeal to the whole of the country. And we had to appeal to everyone digitally. We had a big global audience. So I started to do, because I quite liked running and um, I just had a fourth child and I thought I'd better lose some weight, better get out and about. Started to do some running with the team on a Wednesday lunchtime. Very informal. We, we would, I wouldn't call it running, it was more jogging. And we would potter up Carnaby Street to Regent's Park and then potter around. We did it a few times and then more people joined and I thought, well, let's make it interesting. Let's get people to come out and run with us. Um, we had the Minister of Sport. We had some Olympic athletes come with us. We, we just had the women's hockey team after their um, win at the Olympics. We, we basically just called people we knew and said, will you just come and run with us? And, and I was using it as a way of making a team feel closer together. And then I looked at other members of the team who didn't want to run, and a lot of people couldn't run, and it was, there were various injuries and things, and we had a chief sub who was training to be a yoga teacher. So on a Friday, we, we cleared the fashion cupboard, and we had yoga classes in the fashion cupboard for people who wanted to do that. We set up a book club. It was just... But the sport, and the, very much a kind of this-girl-can attitude, became really important to the team. It really lifted the team. And we were also noticing that it was getting huge traction digitally for us. Women were really interested in it and their clubs and the things that they were doing, but never from a kind of, I've just run 5K in 22 minutes, ne never from that point of view. So we then started to work with some sports brands. We worked with Nike, we worked with Adidas, very much under the ethos, it is not about bests, it's, not about, it's about lots of people taking part, really enjoying it and doing that as part of their life. We also did... We went and learned the, the moves to the Justin Bieber video and things like that. We just thought we'll put dance in there because some women like dance as well. So it was all part of what we did. And I think it was really useful to see a team lift up and be happier in their workplace just from doing that and to realise that actually that's probably reflective of women around the country doing that, other teams. And lots of um, other uh, industries contacted me to say, we want to set up a run club, how do you do it? And they thought we had a pack and a thing and a thing. I was like, well, no, we just come to work and our trainers on Wednesday and then we just go for a run and we come back and that's kind of what we do. <laughs> so, and, and it was starting to spread. And it's a very, it spread through some of the other magazines. We went out with Runners World and we, it became part of the culture. And I think that's really important that this, it isn't elitist if it's part of the culture. And I, I learned sort of five things from working like that. Um, as we were seeing the rise of the blog culture as well around us with, with women blogging. And the fitness blogging wasn't so much about 
how well everyone was doing. It was really lots of women telling their stories, how they'd had issues with mental health and, and running particularly, actually, and swimming had been particularly helpful for them. So the whole blog culture, which is... For me, the internet is about what it makes you feel, and that was all rising up around fitness and young women at the same time. But I, I, I learnt the five things, if you want to do this in an office environment, that any language around sport can make it seem elitist. You have to be quite careful about saying, well, I've just run 10K and I've done that. I'm just posting it on my Nike app. That's very off-putting for a lot of people. It's not very inclusive. So we softened the language around sport in the office environment because, you know, I am a little bit competitive, but not everyone is. <laughs> um, the, anything we did had to be fun because you still had to want to do it in, in... Actually, Tim came out and we played some games in the park as well. And we did it in pouring rain. So people are going to have to want to do it in the rain, I think. Um, You've got to listen to everyone's voices around it, and I learned that probably for every one negative voice around anything like that, you have to have five positive voices, otherwise the negative voice often comes across much more strongly um, in an office. Um, if you're a boss, you have to do it. You, you can't say, well, all of you go out today, I'm a bit too busy. If you don't do it, people won't come with you. You have to foster that happiness and energy um, in the office, and you have to have an opt-out if people don't want to do it. And not to be tapping them on the shoulder and saying, you have to come with us, we're all, <laughs> we're all going running. Um, we, we learned that sport is inclusive. It's not elitist, really. And we had a softball team, because we had three Americans um, on the team, so they set up their own softball team. Um, we had a netball team on a little bit as well. So, and we had lots of women coming in and saying, why can't you join this and do this as well? So it became quite a much bigger thing than us. So I do think bragging about it, doesn't work, but actually talking about sport and constantly opening the dialogue is really important, especially for young women, especially around that anxiety issue. Thank you very much. Thanks, very much. Thanks for listening. To find out about the House of St Barnabas, go to hosb.org.uk. And for more information on Bug, go to buglondon.co.uk. And both websites have details on how you can get tickets and come along to one of our talks. So why not come along? Maybe I'll see you there.